Tonight, I'm going to be sharing uh, uh, about John the Baptist. I'm going I'm to speak and preach a, a message on that. But before I do that, I want to invite you to, to look at Luke chapter 2 with me. Look over at Luke chapter 2. Once a month, we want to take a, a focus and, and take a night and focus on, on the house of prayer and the ministry of intercession, the forerunner ministry. We're going to be doing that once a month. And so uh, I'm going to do that a little bit tonight. And, and we'll continue as the, the weeks go by to, to have at least one Sunday night where we're focusing on the ministry of intercession at the end of the age, what God's called us to be as a, a people that are preparing the way for the Lord. But I want to look at Luke chapter 2. This is one of our, our favorite verses in the house of prayer. It's one that the Lord really put deep in our hearts years ago. And, and one that we've seen that the Lord has used to give people courage to serve Him in the place of worship and prayer. We have around 40 staff who their first function of ministry is night and day worship and prayer. And they do all sorts of other ministry functions, outreach and, and administrative things and all sorts of different kind of ministry functions. Uh, but their first place is as intercessors and worshipers before the Lord. And we get that from multiple places in the scripture. But this passage in Luke chapter 2, it's one that gives real focused courage to those that have a heart to serve the Lord in worship and prayer. So let me just read this. Luke chapter 2, verse 36 says, There was one Anna. She was a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Everybody say night and day. Night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. We love Anna. She's one of our heroes. And if you can just uh, give me a moment, let me explain the story. If, if this woman got married maybe around the age of 17, she stays married for seven years. And at 24, tragedy strikes her life. She loses her husband. And it's right there in that place of tragedy and difficulty that she has to make a decision. What will she do with her life? And what the Bible tells us is this, that she gives herself to serving the Lord in fastings and prayers. This becomes her, her vocational expression where she gives herself to God in, in serving the Lord in fasting and prayer. And so she does this until she's 84 years old, 84 years old. So just think about that for a minute. You know, some of us have been serving the Lord in the house of prayer for 10 years. And you think you kind of know everything about prayer after 10 years. Well, if that was Anna, she's just getting started. 10 years turns into 20, 20 turns into 40, and 40 turns into 60 years where she's serving the Lord night and day in fastings and prayers with worship. And the Bible right here in this passage, it dials us in on this one specific day. And that day was the day that Jesus was being dedicated and prophesied over. And so here she is, I imagine 60 years of intercession. This woman has been praying in God's mysteries for decades. And somewhere along the line, she probably was asking, Lord, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I praying for? I believe the Lord showed her what it was she was crying out for. She was crying out for the promise of Israel. She was crying out for Messiah to come. And so here she is in this, this life given to the Lord, poured out in, in holy devotion to the Lord. And that one day, I just imagine it this way, that she turns the corner and everything seems familiar. It's almost like she saw it in visions or something in her intercessions. She turns and she sees Jesus. And the Bible says this, that coming in that instant, that's the instant that Simeon was prophesying over Jesus, coming in that very instant, she sees Jesus, and in one second, the very desire of, of the Lord's heart that she's been interceding into the earth for 60 years, it all comes to a, to a head in that one moment. Here she has prayed Messiah into the earth. Can you imagine? 
And the Bible says as soon as she sees Jesus, she goes and tells everyone she could about Jesus. Some commentators believe she literally went door to door throughout all Jerusalem. Can you imagine 84-year-old intercessory Anna? She's a prophetess. She knocks on your door. You open the door, and there she is pointing that long prophetic finger at you. Have you heard? Messiah has come. I mean, that would send goosebumps up and down your spine, and your goosebumps would grow new goosebumps. I mean, it would be so intense. But here's the thing. We look at Anna's example. Thank you for that giggle over there. I accept that. I receive it. Anyway, we accept Anna's example as one that gives us courage now because just like that generation before the Lord came in his first coming, he raised up Anna, he raised up John the Baptist, he raised up Simeon and undoubtedly others who were looking for Messiah to come. In our day, in our time, there's many who are believing that we're in the generation that could see the return of the Lord. And I don't know if it's 10 years or 100 years, but the signs are evident in the earth, and it feels like in the spirit, the sound has gone out, the bridegroom is coming. And there's many in our day that are sensing that same thing. I've literally traveled around the world and asked the question in, in full rooms of thousands of people and say, how many of you believe that the Lord could return in our generation? And the hands go up, 70, 80% of the people believe it. And it's like, man, there's something happening in the spirit where we sense his coming is near. Well, just like in that generation where the Lord raised up Anna and John the Baptist and Simeon and others, in this generation, he's raising up many that are hearing the sound. The bridegroom is coming, and he's putting on them the grace of fasting and prayer, and he's actually giving permission for them to serve the Lord in worship and prayer as a vocation. We have 40 intercessory missionaries that are domestic. We have another 40-plus intercessory missionaries who serve the Lord in the nations, and what they are are missionaries who serve the Lord in full-time ministry with fasting and prayer with worship as the centerpiece of their, of their job, crying out for the coming of the Lord. And so I want to do this. I want to take a moment before I preach, and I'm preaching before I preach. I'm going to take a moment, and I want to pray for you. And I want to ask the Lord right now to witness to your heart. You might hear this, and you might say, you know what, I... I don't know how that could possibly work for me, but there's something on the inside of you that says, man, if I could do that, if I could serve the Lord in worship and prayer and fasting as the centerpiece of my vocation, if I could do that in a full-time way as my vocation, I would, I would say yes instantly. If the Lord would make a way, if he would make it clear that this is his direction, and if he would provide a way financially uh, I would say yes. And so uh, we have, I've literally given this call hundreds of times, and it always blows my mind because there's an ever-increasing uh, hunger to be a person like Anna, a person operating in a prophetic spirit with an intercessory anointing, preaching the gospel. There's, there's this desire happening that God's releasing all over the nations of the earth. No matter what country I go to, I can give this call and literally hundreds of people will stand. I gave this call in Brazil to a room, this is the summer, to a room of about 1,500 people and about 1,300 stood. I was shocked. It was the wildest thing. I, I, I mean, I was like, I said to the translator, I said, I don't think they knew what I just asked. And he said, no, I said it exactly how you said it. I asked them if they felt they, like they wanted to serve the Lord in night and day prayer as their vocation. And they stood all across the room and we prayed and fire came on the people. I'm just telling you, beloved, we're in an hour right now where what's happening in the earth is so clearly giving us signs of the nearness of the Lord's return. Crazy times require crazy measures, if I could say it that way. And the Lord is raising up a cry from his bride that will beckon Jesus back to the planet. I believe we're going to see hundreds of thousands of people who are employed in intercession as their primary calling. We're going to see that before the Lord returns. Hundreds of thousands, maybe millions. 
before the Lord returns. So if you'd say to me, I don't know how it would work for me, but if the Lord would provide the finance, if he would make it clear, speak prophetically to me, provide the finance, I, I would say yes. I would say yes to serving him in, in, in night and day prayer as my vocation. I want to pray for you if that's you. So if that's you, I want to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for you right now. So if that's you, stand now. And I even want to throw this out. Yeah, many are standing. I want to throw this out to our staff. You might be part-time right now, and you're saying, Lord, I want full-time. If that's you, I want to invite you to stand. Because I want, I want to ask the Lord to release the finance right now. Amen. So just look around the room. There's a couple dozen standing. I've given this call hundreds of times, and somebody said, it's a trap. Because when we give this call and we pray this prayer, God begins to work. So I'm going to pray for three things. I'm going to pray that he gives you clarity in the spirit, encounters you prophetically. I'm going to pray that he releases the finances, and then I'm going to pray he puts the same grace on you like what was on Anna so that you can't help but stand, serve, minister, and burn before him in the place of worship and prayer. If there's somebody near you that's standing, put your hand on them. Otherwise, let's just stretch our hands out to these. Father, we love you. We thank you for the grace that was on Anna, and we thank you that you want to put it on many, many, many in this hour. And so, Lord, I'm asking for those who are standing right now that you would encounter them in visions, in dreams, that you'd speak to them through all measures of the Holy Spirit. You'd speak to them and confirm that you're calling them into this ministry. And, Lord, I'm asking for finance. Release finance right now. To the, to the Levites, to the ones that you would have stand and serve and minister and burn in the house of prayer. Release tributaries of finance, inexplicable, that the monies would come in ways they could never have imagined. And Lord, I'm asking you for the very grace, huh, the very grace that was on Anna, release it on these, that they would have a burning heart to serve you in the place of worship and intercession with fasting. God, do it in their lives, I'm asking. And Lord, we give you thanks for it. We believe you're doing it. You're setting the watchman on the wall. So Lord, we say, set these on the wall in the name of Jesus. And everybody that agreed with that said, amen, amen, and amen. All right, you may be seated. Yeah, let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise for that. So just, I'll just throw this out at you. Just immediately following the service, right here out these double doors in that, that task area where we have kind of a coffee area and a little lounge, uh, we're going to have an information meeting. If you want to find out more information about what we do in the house of prayer, our internships, or, or, or just anything about coming on staff or what it could look like, or if you have any questions at all, we have 84 two-hour prayer meetings every single week. You don't have to be on staff to serve in the house of prayer. If you're interested in getting connected at any level, Becca Pendleton, there she is. She will be right out those doors in that task area. She'll be happy to meet you, answer any questions you might have. So just immediately following the, the, um, the altar ministry time, we'll, we'll have that information meeting. Amen. Okay. Well, I love to have a word of prayer. So let's have another word of prayer, and we'll take a look at the scripture. Lord, I want to center my heart before you tonight. I feel like there's something bubbling in the spirit, even this, even this day, as we are addressing things in the atmosphere and things in our hearts. I pray that even tonight, you would release revelation on the word that would cause our hearts to burn. Lord, I pray you bring us into revelation of the unique hour that we're living in, and you speak to our hearts about an appropriate response that we would live in, in wisdom at this most unique hour. So I'm asking, Holy Spirit, right now, would you help me to speak as an oracle? Would you stand here, hold my hand, Lord? And I'm asking for the spirit of revelation to come on us that we would engage with the heart of Jesus, our soon coming King. Thank you, Lord, for your word tonight. We set our hearts aside to hear what it is the Spirit is saying. 
We give you thanks in Jesus' name, and everybody that agreed said amen. Amen, amen. All right, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Pull out your device or your Bible. How many have a paper Bible? Let's just, whoo, all right, look at all the paper. Paper Bible's going on. Luke chapter 1. I want to preach uh, about John the Baptist. I want to preach a message entitled, Holy Spiritual Violence. Holy Spiritual Violence. There's a song that uh, our, our, our friend and worship leader Caleb Andrews wrote talking about, how he said in the song, he says, life ain't all, uh, only, but it's always a war. Life ain't only, but it's always a war. And then he goes, then he says, uh, my flesh is raging against you, Lord. I've paid my vows, but to walk it out, it's a narrow road. And then he goes, it takes violence. It takes violence. And I was thinking about that truth that we're in an hour right now where to stand firm, really just to stand for biblical Christianity takes violence. But then to actually gain traction and move against the sway of this world system, it takes violence, like real violence. And the scripture talks about Holy spiritual violence. I'm not talking about physical violence, fleshly violence, getting angry at people and ranting on Facebook or doing anything physical. I'm talking about a spiritual tenacity on the inside of you that compels you into radical obedience and radical abandonment for the Lord Jesus. This is what the church needs so badly right now to be a people who are radically, radically abandoned to the Lord, not not out of a a, a religious show or out of any kind of legalistic kind of boundaries or chains, but out of a love that is burning so deeply and so brightly in their heart. They are compelled to serve Jesus with everything on the inside of them. Am I making any sense right now? And so this is what I want to talk about because John the Baptist He is the example, he's the New Testament example that the Lord gives us of living in spiritual violence. And that's exactly what Jesus said about him. So I'm going to set this up a little bit and then we're going to end up in Matthew chapter 11. So Luke chapter 1, the angel speaking to John the Baptist's father says this. It says, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will, I'm reading the New American Standard and it says it this way in the New American Standard. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, before Jesus, in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. It's quoting Malachi 4 verse 5. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. We use this term forerunner speaking of being a people that's readied and readying others for the the, the great revival at the end of the age and the return of the Lord Jesus. And we get it from this passage right here in Luke chapter 1, where the New American Standard calls John the Baptist a forerunner for the Lord. Now in Isaiah 40, in Malachi 3, and in Malachi 4, it was prophesied about John the Baptist that he would go before the Lord as a voice of one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. And just like we just prayed for for those that would say yes, like that same calling like Anna had, 
The Lord is very clear that at the end of the age, he's taking that same spirit that was on John the Baptist. He called it the spirit of Elijah right there, the spirit and the power of Elijah. He's taking that same spirit and he's putting it on the church at the end of the age with the idea that they're going to prepare the way, not for the first coming, but for the Lord's second coming. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus came to the earth, as a baby, when he came in his, in his earthly ministry, when he came to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to die as a sacrifice, when he came in his first coming, he didn't come without emissaries preparing the way. He didn't come without a forerunner people. And beloved, I'm telling you, the Lord is coming to this planet very soon. He's coming, he's returning and he's not going to return sort of just blindly with the church not knowing what's going on. He's going to return to a church that is crying out for him to come and that is preparing the way for him to come. Just like in his first coming, there was a people preparing the way and John the Baptist was the model forerunner. In his second coming, there's gonna be an entire generation operating under this forerunner spirit that's gonna prepare the way for the Lord. And they're operating, they will be operating in the spirit of Elijah, just like John the Baptist. It's what Malachi said in Malachi chapter 4, 5 and 6. The Lord said he's going to release Elijah the prophet. And that, that release of that spirit of Elijah, he, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and, and, and the, the actual language reads much more closer to this passage in Luke. He's going to turn the children, the disobedient, to the attitude of righteousness and prepare the way of the Lord. So when we're talking about the forerunner calling or the, the forerunner spirit or the forerunner ministry, we're talking about this very thing where there's a people who will prepare the way of the Lord. And I like to think of it in two things, preparing for the Lord's coming in massive revival and preparing for the Lord's coming in his glorious return. Amen. And so we feel gripped. We feel very strongly commissioned under that end to be a forerunner people. So Jesus said this about John the Baptist. He said this in John chapter 5, verse 35. He said, he was a burning and shining lamp. A burning and shining lamp. In John 3, John the Baptist began to talk about Jesus, and he said this. He said, he's the bridegroom, and the bridegroom has the bride. But the friend of the bridegroom, that's what John the Baptist called himself, the friend of the bridegroom, he rejoices to hear the bridegroom's voice. And so John the Baptist is interesting because he's the first one in the New Testament that gives any kind of indication that there is a marriage coming, that Jesus is a bridegroom, and that he is coming because he is, he's going to marry a people. John the Baptist is the one that first calls Jesus the bridegroom. And John the Baptist says, he says, my joy is made full in that the bridegroom is coming. He goes, I'm so excited. I get to decrease. He's going to increase. And we see this heart in John the Baptist where he's rejoicing over the fact that Jesus, the bridegroom, is going to come. He's going to be, he's going to be the bridegroom God that, that Isaiah talked about. He's going to come, and he's going to redeem from the earth a people, and he's going to marry those people. John the Baptist says, I'm so excited that I get to hear his voice and that I get to stand by as a friend of the bridegroom to prepare a people for the Lord. Now, beloved, I want to tell you something. The church has to enter in to that same kind of spiritual identity at the end of the age. To be a friend of the bridegroom, and I'm just gonna take a little tangent because it's just important, where there is this 
mentality that somehow the church is supposed to give many accolades and, and to sort of have, you know, these rock star preachers and worship leaders. I, I wanna tell you something, that is radically misplaced because there's one who gets the bride. It's Jesus. And woe to us as ministers if we do anything to tamper with the affections of the bride in any way taking her affections unto ourselves. John the Baptist said, I rejoice to hear his voice. He goes, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. The picture is, he goes, I'm the steward of the bridegroom preparing the bride for Jesus. I don't touch her. I don't touch her affections. And where popular Christendom has turned into this sort of popularity contest, I'm telling you, careful friends. Like seriously, if that's, if that's your ambition in ministry, anybody's hearing me right now on the internet, if that's your ambition in ministry, be very, very careful right now. I'd repent of that ambition. You're not to steal the affections of the bride. There's one who gets the affections of the bride. It's the bridegroom. And that's what John the Baptist said. He was the first one with the revelation that Jesus was a burning bridegroom in love with his people. And that revelation, that revelation of intimacy is what empowered John the Baptist. And so when Jesus in John 5, Jesus calls him the burning and shining lamp, he's giving us two features of what John the Baptist was like. First, he's burning. He's burning in vibrant love for God. He's radical in love. He's possessed with holy love. What is compelling and moving his heart is the affections of God, the revelation of Jesus as the bridegroom. It's compelling and moving his heart, and it's completely disrupted him from operating in business as usual. He is burning in love for God. Well, let me just tell you something. Before the Lord returns, the church in all the earth will be burning in love for the bridegroom. The church will be burning and bright, righteous love for Jesus. She will have completely rid herself of other lovers, and she will be so lovesick for Jesus. She'll be crying, come, Lord Jesus, come. That's the, the identity that the church will have at the end of the age. The spirit and the bride say come. That's who the church will be. Well, John the Baptist was operating in that, in that, first, in that, that season of the first coming. Well, he was a burning lamp, and he was a shining lamp. Now, burning means he's burning on the inside. He's carrying the reward on the inside. I love this idea. So many people are looking for some external reward of serving Jesus. They're looking for their blessing. The blessing is that you get to burn. You carry the reward of fire on the inside that the love of God is eating you up, that your heart is on fire, that you're filled with the pleasure of God. You're inebriated and intoxicated, not with the wine of this world, but with the wine of the love of God. You live every day whelmed, overwhelmed by the love of God. That's what causes the heart to burn. That's the ultimate reward of this life. And beloved, in Christ, we carry the reward on the inside. Just let me ask you something. What is a greater reward than carrying Holy Spirit inside your spirit? What can I give you that's better than that? I'll answer it. Nothing. Holy Spirit on the inside, imparting the love of God into your spirit and your soul. You're feeling the affections and the emotions of God. That's the reward. He's a burning lamp. You know, we have these pictures of John the Baptist, and you think of him as this wild man. I bet he was. I bet he was wild. And we think of him as really austere and stern. I, I bet he was intense. I mean, brood of vipers. That's pretty intense. But I'm telling you, he says, my joy is made full. I see the bridegroom. And there was a rejoicing in him. There was an excitement, and a, there was a, a, an infectious love about him. He was a burning lamp. Well, he was a shining lamp too. He was a burning and shining. The shining part of him being this lamp is that his righteousness was evident for everyone else to see. 
Everyone could see this man that was a burning man. Everyone could see this righteousness that was coming off of his life. He was a testimony to everyone around him of what it looks like when a man falls in love with the bridegroom God. He was a shining lamp. He was an expression of this righteousness. He was not simply a prophetic voice. We're going to see that in just a second. But he was the message itself. He was a shining one, declaring holiness, holiness to the Lord to an entire generation. John the Baptist, he's the model forerunner. I want you to get a vision for understanding this man's ministry. Think about this. God is going to come in the flesh. He's going to send his only son to the earth. He's going to send one as the announcer. He's going to send one as the herald of Jesus coming. He's going to use that one as a prophetic picture. And that's what John the Baptist is. And so we see verse after verse after verse declaring things about John the Baptist and they're supposed to instruct our hearts as to how we're supposed to live in this earth and specifically how the church is supposed to live at the end of the age. Am I making any sense tonight? All right. All right, with all that in mind, that was my introduction. Turn to Matthew 11. I just want to work through Matthew 11 and then we'll pray. Dustin is a burning and shining lamp. I loved old Dustin, but I love new Dustin. We got lit up with the love of God, and he's never been the same. We were in a staff meeting this week, and he was just talking about how hungry he is for the presence of God and for the love of God. This is one of our executive meetings. <laughs> our executive meetings aren't, aren't like normal places. And they're talking about the four prophetic dreams and how our, our hearts are gnawing in hunger and love for Jesus. We have operational meetings, but th this is a meeting where we try to pray and hear the Lord. And I just so appreciated Dustin coming in there as this burning and shining lamp. All right, Matthew chapter 11. So this is where John the Baptist is in prison. He's going to be executed in a few weeks. He's going he's gonna to be martyred. John the Baptist, he, interesting, he really, he could have been out of prison. He didn't have to be in prison. But he refused to hold back the word of the Lord. And I just want to tell you, there is an end for the messenger that <laughs> refuses to hold back the word of the Lord. That end isn't usually that they enthrone you and throw good things at you. <laughs> that end is usually off with his head. And that's what happened with John the Baptist. But so what happens is in verse 1 through 6, he sends some of his disciples to Jesus. And I think it's misunderstood what's going on with John there. He's God's herald describing, he's the one that's making straight the way of the Lord, describing the coming of the Lord. And so he, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus responds with, tell John what you see, the lame walk. The blind see, the dead are raised. And then Jesus says, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. I don't think it was about strengthening John's heart. I think it was about his own disciples getting the message from the horse's mouth, getting the testimony that Jesus indeed was the one. And so then Jesus now is gonna say this about John the Baptist, and I'm just gonna teach through this a bit. As they departed, as John's disciples departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Verse nine, but what did you go out to see? You wanna go see a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. This is intense. So Jesus is now 
rebuking the multitudes with these rhetorical questions. He's not asking them the question because he wants them to answer. He's asking them three questions because he's trying to drive it into their heart that they've almost missed God's messenger preparing the way of the Lord. They've almost missed it. He's saying to them, you went out in the desert to see something. You heard there was a sensation, a prophet. You heard there was some man out there baptizing. Why did you go out there? He goes, let's investigate your heart. What did you go to see? What did you think you were going to find when you went out there? A reed shaking in the wind? In other words, there's these Middle Eastern reeds that grow up after storms. They're very fragile. Did you see, think you were going to go find some fearful man just blowing with the, the pressures of the day? Is that what you thought you were going to find? Oh, oh, did you think you were going to find a man in soft or fine clothing? Did you think you were going to find somebody who was wealthy? You know, somebody wealthy, like, that should be in a king's palace? Is, is that what you thought you were going to find? Or, or were you going out there because you knew he was a prophet of God? You were going to find a spiritual sensation. Is that what you were thinking you were going to find? He goes, oh, yeah, he was a prophet. But Jesus is telling them, but you have no clue the hour you're living in. He was a prophet and he says, and he was more than a prophet. He was more than a prophet. He was the one that was, that was commissioned to mark the coming of the Son of God. He goes, he was the one who was, who was, it was written of him, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus is trying right now to emphasize to them that John the Baptist's calling was absolutely significant, and they almost missed it. I loved when they, in, they investigated John, they interrogated John. And they asked him, they said, who are you? Are you the Messiah? He said, no. Who are you? Are you a, what are you, some new prophet? He goes, no. Well, what are you, John? I'm a voice. I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness to make straight the way of the Lord. I love that. A voice of one crying in the wilderness to make straight the way of the Lord. I, I like it. He, said, he, he didn't say, I'm a face. I'm a voice. He, he didn't say, I'm an echo. He said, I'm a voice. John the Baptist was anointed in that generation to pierce through all the religious malaise and to announce to the planet the Son of God. And similarly, in this hour, there's a spirit of prophecy that the Lord wants to release on the church that the church would have a voice in an hour when there's so many voices that the church would have a voice that announces the urgency of the hour that we're living in. And Jesus is going to tell us, what does it take to live like that? What does it take to be like John the Baptist? Look at verse 11. He says, assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. What? He's the greatest man who's ever lived from the mouth of God. Oh my goodness. He goes, you were going to see a prophetic sensation. You were going to a new camp meeting. You heard something was going on out there in the Jordan. You walked five hours out to see it. You wanted a show and you have no idea who he was. He's the greatest man born among women. Oh my goodness. He goes, but let me explain to you something. The kingdom, the least in the kingdom, is even greater than that. Stunning. Now look at this, verse 12. Jesus is about to announce this transition. This is critical. He goes, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, from the time John the Baptist came on the scene prophesying until right now, 
The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. This is a critical, critical verse. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. That word suffers, you could, you could put in there, allows. The kingdom of heaven allows violence, spiritual aggressiveness. The kingdom of heaven, from the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven has taken on sort of a new program. And the new program is holy spiritual violence. John the Baptist, empowered by the love of God, a burning and shining lamp, moving in holy spiritual violence. He says, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force, or you could say it this way, the violent possess the kingdom. And this is what Jesus is identifying, is that John the Baptist, he marked a transition. From the days of John the Baptist, he's saying there was a transition that began with John the Baptist's ministry. And I want to explain this just for a minute. There are, in the Bible, three clear transitional generations. Now, that's not a scriptural phrase, but it's an ex explanatory phrase. It explains what happens in these three generations that are highlighted in the scripture. And it, these are transitional generations, and a transitional generation is where God moves things from the old order to a brand new order. And the, the transitional generations are hallmarked by an increase of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, dramatic signs and wonders, power proclamations, and a complete shift of nations. The first transitional generation was during the Exodus in Moses' day. Israel went from being in Egypt and being in slavery for 400 years till now God through signs and wonders and a strong right arm, plucks them up out of Egypt and makes a nation out of them. And he does it with 10 plagues on Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, with raining down manna that lands on the earth and turns into bread that they eat. Manna, it's a, what is it? They eat this. And this is how they live for years their clothes don't wear out. The signs and the wonders and the supernatural power of God manifest in that transitional generation is like nothing else up to that time. It's a complete shift. And Israel is born, born into, you know, possessing her land. Well, the, the second transitional generation is with John the Baptist. He goes, from the days, from the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry, there is a new approach. It's spiritual violence. Spiritual violence. Holy spiritual violence. It's an aggressive heart. It's a heart that pursues and lays hold of God and, and, and doesn't allow the sway of the world system to press it back into complacency and lethargy. It is having a heart that is so overrun with the love of God that it's absolutely burning and compelled to pursue God no matter the cost. Spiritual violence. And in that transitional generation, beginning with John the Baptist, we have the advent of the Messiah's ministry, and then we have the massive outbreak and outpouring of the Holy Spirit, signs, wonders, miracles, and we have the birth of the church. It's a complete transition. Well, the final transitional generation is in the generation in which the Lord returns. He says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, and the children's church will prophesy. I'm just thinking about this. Right, Christopher's over here. Bro, we got to get it. We got to get ready. Because in a minute, the five-year-olds are going to be having face-to-faces with Jesus. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. On my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. 
I will show signs in the heavens and wonders in the earth, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And it shall come to pass that all those that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is a massive inbreaking of the Holy Spirit that's getting ready to happen on planet earth. The church is about to get poured on it a power from on high that we have never seen before in signs, wonders, and miracles. And what's going to happen with it is going to be, it's going to be signs in the heavens, wonders in the earth, and blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. Those are judgment indicators. So with the power of God being poured on the earth, the judgment of God will be poured on the earth. And we are going to go through a crucible that will refine the bride to where she will love Jesus with all of her heart, mind, soul, and strength. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ is not coming back for a disinterested bride. He's coming back for an equally yoked bride who loves him the way that he loves her. That's what's getting ready to happen. Massive revival is coming to the planet. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will have a revival spirit burning in them, and the Lord will return. It will be the signs and the wonders of Egypt with the power that was on the apostles multiplied to the church across the globe and heightened about a thousand percent. This is what's coming to the planet. And that transitional generation transitions us from this age into the next. And the next age, the Bible is absolutely clear, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The very atmosphere of the earth will be glory. Everybody wants to, to go to heaven. I'm telling you something. Heaven is coming to earth. Jesus is returning to the planet. The law will go forth from Zion. He shall teach us his ways. This is the agenda of the days ahead. Massive revival, the return of the Lord, and the restoration of all things. That's all in front of us. Your greatest days are still in front of you. And here's the deal. If you have any kind of an inclination in your spirit that the Lord's return is near, then you're called into alertness and awakeness and into the ministry that John the Baptist had. Jesus was super clear in Matthew 25. He's told the parable of the virgins. Five had gotten oil. Five had brought none. The ones that were not ready were not able to enter in. And beloved, this is the hour to get oil. This is the hour to awaken to righteousness. This is the hour, as I preached this morning, to come out of Babylon and to allow your heart to burn and to begin to shine. This is the time. So John the Baptist, this, this violence, this spiritual violence, this holy spiritual violence, it was so radical what he looked like. You know, he's the son of a priest, but he doesn't live, and he's not raised by priests. He's, he lives in the desert, and he's, he, he's raised by the Essenes. The Essenes were this, this sect of these, these, I mean, just intense uh, Jews who they baptized people sometimes 11, 12 times a day. They were taking holiness vows and studying the word of God constantly. It's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in Qumran, was an Essene establishment. It's the kind of place that they believe John the Baptist was raised in. And he had a holy violence about him that the religious establishment hated. Hated it. Why? Because the religious establishment was in bed with Herod, and John the Baptist was having none of it. And he was calling out their immorality and calling out the adultery. And he was calling it out, calling out the religion. And it ended up being the end of him, which is the message. He must increase, I must decrease. Now, beloved, I know that it's popular in our day to hear messages that make us feel better about ourselves, tell us the five blessings we're gonna get if we do these three things, I know that that's popular. But I'm telling you, we are in an hour right now where we cannot goof around any longer. We cannot mess around any longer. 
Jeff sent me a dream this morning. It's got some details to it. But in the dream, the theme song for Hee Haw was being played in the church. It's just ridiculous. And the Lord was encouraging us, preach the word of God no matter the cost. Preach a holy, violent love for God no matter the cost. Preach the spiritual violence of, of John the Baptist and Elijah no matter the cost, no matter the cost. And beloved, this is the call on the church is that we would be a people so marked with passion for Jesus, so marked with the love of God that we would abandon all and run headlong into pursuit of Jesus in an hour that the earth needs it the most. You know what the earth does not need right now? A lukewarm, half-baked, mealy-mouthed bride. The earth right now needs a bride who is so in love with Jesus that she looks so radically different than every other thing that's out there that they finally say, man that group they are shining and I believe this there's 400 companies all over the earth that God is raising up and he's doing it in the place of intimacy with his heart he's not doing it in, in these big showy places I was sharing with one of our guys and David Bryan who's one of our missionaries and he had the opportunity to, to share at the send with 60,000 believers and here we are nine months later, seven months later and I said, so what did you think about being on that platform now that you've got seven months behind you? He goes, it meant nothing. I said, that's exactly right. Human popularity means nothing. Human popularity means nothing. But but being known in the throne of God, being known before the face of God, being known amongst the angels at the throne room. Watch this. Being known amongst the devils in hell. One life to live that soon will pass. Oh, man. I want my life to count for something. I want my life to mean something. And I guarantee you, the meaning of this life is not getting everything you can and ascending some popularity contest or some success ladder. That is not the meaning of this life. The meaning of this life is, did you learn to love? Did you love Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? And did you love your neighbor as yourself? Did you pour yourself out? And here's the scariest thing with us that have been in the church, especially those that are on staff in the house of prayer. It's Again, Caleb Andrews, I'm quoting his songs tonight. So what if you know all the language? So what if you can sing all these songs? If our heart is disconnected from the greatest one of all, so what if you know all the little cliches? I don't care if you learned all those Bible passages for 10 years. Is your heart burning right now? Because in a half second, the only thing that's going to matter is having a burning heart. I'm telling you. It won't matter the number in your bank account. It won't matter how many letters you have after your name. It won't matter what you, uh, corporate ladder you ascended or what neighborhood you live in or what kind of car you drive. The only thing will matter is if your heart is burning and your lamp is filled with oil. <laughs> Beloved, this is who we're called to be. This is the way we're called to live. With a spiritual violence that is in complete opposition to the world system. And I'm telling you, as things get darker and darker, the sway of the world gets stronger and stronger. The current gets stronger and stronger. And it takes more and more to stand against the sway of the world. I'm talking about just standing for Jesus. It takes more and more. Spiritual violence, I'm, I'm landing. Spiritual violence is empowered by two things. A heart burning in passion for Jesus, in passionate love for Jesus, and a recognition of the urgent hour in which you live. Spiritual violence, it's not played out in a single meeting or in a week. It's not played out at a conference. 
Spiritual violence is played out day in, day out, over time, with fasting, with praying, with giving, with bold proclamation and complete humility. That's what it looks like. Spiritual violence is not about how on fire you were for those six weeks, those six months, or those six years. It's what did you do over the long haul? Spiritual violence takes the grace of God to live a life of faithfulness, to live a life of love. If a man loves God, the same will be known of him. Does your life declare? I'm taking inventory of my own heart right now. Does it declare that you're in love with God? Last few verses, verse 16. Matthew 11, verse 16, he says, But what, to what shall I like in this generation? He said, It's like children sitting in the marketplaces calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. You can look at that passage two different ways. Firstly, you can look at the passage like the children calling out. They're calling out to Jesus and John and they're saying, you're not what we expected. We wanted you to dance. We wanted you to mourn. We, we expected a certain thing from you, and you're nothing like what we expected. And the context seems to follow that because then Jesus goes on and says, John came neither eating nor drinking, and you said he has a demon. And the son of man, he came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and of sinners. But Jesus says, wisdom is justified by your children. And I'm telling you, beloved, I'm telling you, giving your life to Jesus in fasting and prayer, going deep in the word of God, going deep in the knowledge of God, even when it's boring, even when the hottest thing out there is getting all the likes on social media and all the hits on YouTube, and you're burrowing into the heart of God, I'm telling you, there's a day when all those likes and all those subscriptions on social media are going to mean that. And all that's going to matter is oil in the lamp. Wisdom will be justified. Well, that's one way to look at the passage. The other way to look at the passage is this. It's as if Jesus was saying, I played a flute and you didn't dance. And then I played a dirge and you didn't mourn. Here I am. I'm God in the flesh. Here's John He's God's messenger, a voice crying. Here we are, crying out. And the cooperative response in a transitional generation, first generation, the, the, the cooperative response is indifference. You were so disinterested with the will of God that you did nothing. You sat by while God in the flesh was in front of you and the most you wanted was to be fed with loaves and fishes instead of hurling your heart into abandoned love of him. And the entire Jewish nation virtually that Jesus came to redeem rejected him in his first coming. You know what they're gonna do in his second coming? They're gonna mourn over him like a firstborn son who's been slain. They're gonna see him as who he is. They're gonna recognize him and they're gonna fall down and give him all of their heart, all of their affection and all their love. He will not lose Israel. All Israel shall be saved. But in that generation, he said... We played the flute, and you didn't do anything. We sang a dirge, and you didn't do anything. And beloved, those words, they hit me. Because right now, I hear the bridegroom's song. You know, you can hear it. You can hear the sound, the bridegroom is coming. If you close your eyes and listen long enough, I'm coming. And you can hear the dance, the wedding 
is close at hand. You can hear it. And you can hear the dirge, the funeral dirge of this age. It's beginning to sound. Paul said he was always sorrowful, yet ever rejoicing. And Jesus is looking for a forerunner people at the end of the age, preparing their hearts and preparing others for his soon come, coming with hearts that are rejoicing to the sound of the flute and the wedding and mourning at the funeral dirge of this age. He's looking for a people who will respond. He's looking for a people who will break out of religious complacency. Break out of checking your religious box. I go to church. It's a crazy church. It counts for something, doesn't it? Is your heart burning? It's all that matters. It's all that matters. Honestly, it doesn't matter who in your family is loving God, who you know that's on fire for God. None of it matters. None of it matters. Is your heart on fire for God? Because in a transitional generation, everything shifts. And in a moment, just like in Jesus' day, those who were on the bottom were on the top, and those who were on the top become on the bottom. He flips the whole thing upside down. And I'm telling you, there is massive transition coming to the earth. We're watching it happen before our eyes. There's an acceleration of spirit. Uh, of negative things spiritually, and there has to be an acceleration of holy spiritual violence. The people of God have got to answer the bell right now, right now. In the name of Jesus, amen, amen. Let's stand.